You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Uh, Brian Leiter, welcome. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for doing this. So um, welcome to the Blogging Heads audience, the Sophia audience. Uh, I'm very pleased to have here uh, uh, Professor Brian Leiter, who's the Carl Llewellyn Professor of Jurisprudence and the Director of the Center for Law, Philosophy, and Human Values at the University of Chicago. Um, Brian, maybe, maybe say a word. Um, what brings you to a law school employment? I mean, I know you have a law degree, but you were a philosopher in the philosophy department at the University of Texas at Austin beforehand. Am I correct? No, I was. My tenure home has actually always been in a law school. Now, why is that? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, long ago, um, well, when I first went on both job markets in 92, 93, so that's over 25 years ago, um, uh, I got one tenure track job offer and it was from a law school at the University of San Diego. Um, the University of California, San Diego doesn't have a law school. So it's this private Catholic university that happens to have a pretty good law school and they were interested in legal philosophy. Um, but not being at a research university was a bit of a drawback. Um, then subsequently I faced a choice. It's, I won't go into all the details, but it was a choice basically between philosophy, being tenure track of philosophy at the University of Arizona. Joel Feinberg had just retired, so they were looking for a legal philosophy person, and the fact that I could do German philosophy and they could understand what I was saying uh, was a plus. Um, and the law school was maybe going to buy a little piece of that appointment, or the alternative arrangement, as it turned out, at Texas, where the tenure track was in law um, and philosophy was quite easy about courtesy or zero zero time time appointments. Um, and there, the decision largely just turned on, you know, practical considerations. Um, tenure was basically certain and quicker at Texas in the law school. University of Arizona, I mean, it's still an excellent philosophy department, and it was then an excellent philosophy department. And, you know, Alvin Goldman was there, Julianus is still there, Gene Hampton, you know, lots of very good people. And I can imagine spending six years there and being denied tenure. <laughs> Right? That's how those kinds of philosophy departments are. That seemed a little unnerving. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, there, this, there are lots of salary differentials between, between law and philosophy. And, um, and being a, a good or not so good Marxist, I know the only rational way to make decisions under capitalism is to maximize your wealth. <laughs> after all, that's what everybody else is doing. I'm being a little flip about it, but, you know, my wife wanted to start a family, and it, it just seemed more secure to go with the with the law route rather you than the... You publish mostly in philosophy, though, don't you? Um, yes. I mean, I've... Uh, I mean, even the things that I publish in law reviews usually have a philosophical or jurisprudential nature to them. I mean, I've written about evidence law, but it's really philosophy of evidence law, right? And that was the other thing, is law schools are, you know, uh, pretty, not all, but many are pretty small C Catholic about this stuff, right? Um, <laughs> at least for some of my colleagues, I think the difference between HLA Hart and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, no difference at all. <laughs> They're philosophers, right? Um, and of course, you know, I my legal philosophy interests and German philosophy interests have funny kinds of points of intersection at a yep. certain 
at a certain mental level. Anyway, so I, you know, no regrets about that. I think it was, uh, it turned out to be, uh, to be a sensible choice. And, uh, and it did, you know, eliminate all kinds of sort of professional stresses that might have attended a tenure track in a, you know, research oriented philosophy department. Did you ever actually practice as an attorney? Yes. You did. I practiced uh, straight out of law school. I worked at a big New York law firm. Um, uh, doing commercial litigation. Um, and that was a good experience. Um, and then, you know, I'd done little bits of things on an ad hoc basis ever since. Um, not so much anymore, but, you know, initially, uh, when I was living in New York, finishing my dissertation, because my wife, she had an actual job. Right? I, I had a fellowship. She had an actual job. But I would occasionally do little bits of legal work now and then, um, put some money in my pocket or help out a family member, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, so very cool. All right. So uh, I'm having you on today, um, to talk specifically, um, about Marxism. So you work in a number of areas, um, and you've published in a number of areas. And one of your main areas is you, you, you do a lot of work on Nietzsche. Maybe I'll have you back to talk about that sometime. Um, but you also, uh, do have done quite a bit on, on Marx and Marxism. And, um, that's what I want to talk to you about uh, today the motivation is, you know, it's funny. I remember back in the 80s when communist was a common epithet that was thrown against uh, anybody left wing of any sort. Um, and then it kind of disappeared for a while. But now it seems like it's come back again as an epithet, although now they don't say communist. They say Marxist and they usually say neo-Marxist without ever explaining what on earth that's supposed to mean. And so I was hoping to have you, who actually does know something about these things, to maybe uh, help educate us in the audience a little bit on what what classical Marxism is, and then what did the Frankfurt School development of uh, classical Marxism involve, and then we can talk maybe about some applications. Okay. So let me say... I'm going to treat the question about classical Marxism as really being the question, what did Marx think? Um, Marx famously said late in his life, one thing I know is I'm not a Marxist. But by this point already, of course, you know, Marx was involved in actual political organizing, you know, and, um, in, you know, all over Europe. Um, and so there were already people who were becoming, you know, Marxist. But I think we can talk reasonably sensibly about the, the things that Marx thought. And then we could talk a little bit about, um, the appropriation or development or, in some cases, abandonment of Marx's views in the later Marxist tradition like the, the Frankfurt School. Um, so let's just start off then with, with old Carl. Um, and, you know, one thing that's worth remembering is he's a guy who had a PhD in philosophy. Um, and he wrote a dissertation uh, it was on Democritus, so he'd studied Greek philosophy. Um, but, of course, he was educated time when, um, when Hegel was the dominant figure in, uh, in German philosophy. Um, Hegel died in 1831 in the cholera epidemic that swept Europe. Um, Marx was born in 1818. But, you know, in the 1840s, as, you know, Marx is coming into his own as an intellectual, there's raging debates between left-wing and right-wing Hegelians, as they, as they were known. And, and Marx sort of gets his start in polemics as a critic of left-wing Hegelian. So let me just say something very simple about Hegel, and then we'll, we'll go right into, into Marx, right? So Hegel, um, 
viewed history, right, as the history of forms of consciousness, right? You can think of a form of consciousness as kind of the geist or the philosophical outlook of an epic, right? So, for example, and we may talk more about this, right, it's sometimes said the, the, the geist of our, the spirit of our age is neoliberalism, right? The idea that markets are the solution to every problem, not government intervention, not government regulation. So Hegel has this idea that every historical epic has a certain form of consciousness that has, you know, a certain political dimension to it, a philosophical or metaphysical dimension to it, uh, often a religious expression that's associated with it. And Hegel shows or purports to show that every form of consciousness prior to the time of Hegel, right, um, had within it certain contradictions, right? There were certain parts of the worldview that didn't really fit together, right? And eventually the worldview collapses because these tensions, right, come to the, come to the fore, right? So in the case of neoliberalism, you might think, well, on the one hand, there's all this talk about freedom, and on the other hand, there's all this talk about markets, but markets, right, at some point end up uh, impinging upon people's freedom, right? If you lose your job because of the marketplace, right, the market has no need for, for your labor power, right? There are very important senses in which you are a less free person, right? I, I'm just, this was not Hegel's case. I'm just offering it uh, to, to illustrate the, the thought. And so Hegel thinks each form of consciousness necessarily evolved by what he famously or infamously called the dialectical process, right? That is, the new form of consciousness overcomes, right, the contradictions of the earlier form, but preserves some of the ideas in a transformed shape, okay? And so Hegel tells the history of the West, right, in terms of these evolving forms of consciousness, until we get to Hegel's own philosophical system where happily all contradictions are resolved. Let me ask you one thing before you go on. These, these geists or whatever you want to call them, these consciousness, I'm assuming that this, this is specific to specific civilizations, right? Yes. So not to specific times, right? So in other words, well, the geist, geist in China and in Asia may be completely different from the one in Europe, even though they're at the same time. Right. That, that is correct. But typically, you can, if you read Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, each chapter you can identify a particular historical epic he's got in mind uh, in a particular place. Um, you know, so it's both time and concepts. But you're right, he doesn't have much to say about the East. I mean, this is a typical 19th century German thing. Um, they're not really, they don't know that much about the Eastern civilization. But he would have said that they have one. He just doesn't know what it is. In other words, this is a human characteristic. Wherever there's human civilization, there's going to be this kind of consciousness. Is that the idea? That's the idea, right? Okay, go on. I'm sorry. Any particular historical epic anywhere has a kind of shared form of consciousness. Gotcha. And, um, you know, his famous line about philosophy that the, the owl of Minerva, which represents philosophy, only flies at dusk. The idea is that only at the end of an epic does it sort of crystallize, right, what the form of consciousness really is, right? And this is what the Greek philosophers do is they make it explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Hegel seems to think this all comes to an end in effect with Hegel, right? That we reach the point in early 19th century Prussia where we can resolve all the prior 
contradictions, right, of all prior philosophical systems and come to a, um, a philosophical worldview that reconciles us with the world around us, that eliminates all the old dualisms, as they like to say, of subject and object, of God and man, and, and on and on. Okay. Details of Hegel's view don't really matter. What matters is this idea of contradictions, right, that ultimately destabilize a form of consciousness, this idea that forms of consciousness evolve progressively, right? Hegel has a, a Whig view of history. Things are getting better. We're getting closer and closer to the truth and absolute knowledge. Right? That's absolute Hegel's absolute idealism. Um, it's a progressive story, so it has a teleological structure to it. So Marx learns all this, and Marx early on, though, has a big disagreement with the left Hegelians. The right Hegelians basically took Hegel to be offering a rationalization for why the Prussian constitutional monarchy was the highest form of human government, right? It's a little bit like, you know, capitalism represents the end of history. Back then it was Prussian constitutionalism represents the, the end, of, uh, end of human history. Um, the left Hegelians thought, no, there's a lot wrong with the constitutional monarchy in Prussia, which seems pretty obvious to us 200 years later. But the left Hegelians, people like Bruno Bauer, who Marx um, never tired of ridiculing, uh, the left Hegelians thought, look, what we really need to do is clear up people's philosophical contradictions, the confusions in their ideas, and then we will transform the world. Hence the idealism of, of Hegel's idealism. Right? It's the ideas that really matter. Um, Marx rejects that. This is the sense in which Marx is a materialist. Right? He thinks the ideas, the forms of consciousness Hegel was so concerned with are themselves really, sometimes he says they're epiphenomena. They are just consequences. They bubble up out of the material conditions of life. Now, what does he mean by the material conditions of life? Well, he starts with, in a way, a simple observation, which is every form of human life has to have a certain way of producing what it needs to survive. Right? Um, and we can distinguish between different aspects of this productive process. Right? Um, one aspect are what come to be known the, the the forces of production. Right? That is, what are the things we have that can produce what we need? Okay. So you go back to cavemen. Right. Um, this will be cartoon cavemen, not the Flintstones, but, you know, stereotypical cavemen. So anthropologists who are listening or archaeologists should forgive this caricature, right? But cavemen, right, what do they have? Well, they have human labor power, okay, and they have some very primitive tools, right? And those are their forces of production, okay? Now, you fast forward to the 19th century in Europe, right, and the forces of the production have become a lot more complex and a lot more complex in a very short period of time, right? The transformation in the productive power of humanity between 1750 and 1850 was enormous, right? Because we still had human labor power, okay? Um, though even human labor power grows a bit over time, right? That is, as people eat better and are healthier, they're stronger, they have more labor power. But the big change was not just in tools, though we certainly had better tools than the cavemen, right? The big change was in technology, right? Um, steam power, right? Um, coal power, okay? 
factories that ran with big machines that were powered by these new sources of power. It's technology, right, that adds to the productive power of humanity um, dramatically as time goes on, okay? And so Marx thinks this is crucial. He thinks the crucial fact about each historical epic is not its form of consciousness, right? The crucial fact is what are its forces of production, right? How does it produce the things that human beings as natural biological organisms that we need to survive, right? Food, clothing, shelter, and so on. How do we produce it, okay? Human labor power is kind of a constant in this. The thing that changes is technology. And I'm using technology very broadly, okay? So technology, you know, includes the lawnmower, steam power, now computers, right? You know, um, the little teeny batteries that power everything we do, nanotechnology, right? We add more and more things, right? And Marx thinks, right, that depending on the level of development of the forces of production, there will arise what he calls relations of production that are well-suited, at least for a period of time, to the productive capacities that people have, right? You can think of relations of production kind of simply as what are the property rights you have in the various forces of production? So let's take you and me, right? Our primary property right is in our labor power. Right? We sell our labor power to universities, right? Namely that we can teach, we can grade, all those things, okay? We sell that in return for a wage, okay? Um, other people, right, own more than just their own labor power. Now, I'm oversimplifying a little because I assume you're in a, some kind of retirement plan just like I am. So there's a way in which we also own bits of other forces of production, right? If you own some Apple stock, right, you own a little bitty piece of a very powerful productive force, namely all the computer technology that Apple produces, right? Um, other people, right, own a lot of the forces of production. Indeed, some of them don't even sell their labor power, right? So take the Koch brothers, right? The Koch brothers have become the poster boys for, you know, evil, evil capitalists in our day and age. I, I don't actually don't think they're evil. They're definitely capitalists and they have pernicious effects on things, but they're, they're just representative. This isn't about them, right? Um, you know, they do not live by selling their labor power. They live because they derive profits from owning forces of production. They own factories. They own for, or more precisely, they own controlling shares of the stocks in the companies that legally own the particular factories that produce all the things that Coke Industries produces around the world. Isn't that, I mean, let me ask you this right here. Right here. I mean, is, is, is Marx not perhaps uh, employing a rather narrow conception of labor? Um, um, in other words, why isn't what the Coke brothers do labor? I mean, so I'll give you an example. I mean, I, I make more money from the shares I own in my father's company than I do from my job, right? Um, okay. And my father uh, owns commercial real estate, right? Um, now, so you're, you're so you're an intermediate class. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I don't know. I, I, you're I assume you're I, a little closer to the Koch brothers. Yeah, but but my but my father certainly, you know, works like crazy, right? I mean, I mean, okay, so but he's not. How are you, how are you talking about the Koch by labor? Okay, so. 
the Koch brothers now earn a tremendous amount of money. They don't perform, they don't sell their labor power to earn any of it. They don't do anything. They're, they're just owners at this point. That's my understanding. Isn't there work involved in being an owner? There can be, but there can also be no work involved, right? Okay. Your father's case is different, right? Your father is in part, right, selling his labor power, though he's not selling it to someone else. He's utilizing it in connection with his own business, right? Right. But a lot of the money he's presumably making from commercial real estate, renting out properties to others, right? And that you're making, right? You're not putting in, I take it, any labor on the commercial real estate, right? No, you're right. You're right. Shares, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's the sense in which you're a little more like the Coke brothers. Take the Walton children. They're, you know, the, the heirs to the Walmart fortune. They're a mm-hmm. better example, right? Yeah. Because they are all, as to my knowledge, the idle rich. But they're very rich. They have a lot of income. Their income derives entirely from ownership, not from the sale of their labor power. And in their case, it's inherited ownership, okay? So ownership can involve labor if there's management and other sorts of things involved. The point is it need not involve labor. It it need not involve any labor. And in most cases, the bulk of the wealth that owners of capital, all right? And I'll just use, this is Marx's term, but let me just explain it in a colloquial sense, right? By capital, I'll just mean whatever it is that you can use to generate profit, right? So that might be investment. It might be the factory you own. It might be the computer software you develop, okay? Gotcha. Um, Even capitalists who invest labor power in their businesses, like Bill Gates. I take it Bill Gates still goes to the office, right? Very little of his wealth derives from that. Right? In that sense, his class position is utterly different than the class position of um, CG, the guy who cuts my lawn, right? Sure. CG landscaping sure. services, right? Now, what is CG has his labor power first and foremost is what he sells, right? And he has certain technology, certain tools. He's got, you know, the electric mowers and this, that, and the other thing, all right? Um, so he's got a small amount of capital there. But primarily what he sells is his labor power. Bill Gates has labor power. He seems to be a healthy, you know, active guy. But that is not what his wealth derives from. It derives from ownership of these forces of production. Gotcha. Now, here's the the genius of capitalism. Um, And Marx would have agreed it was the genius of capitalism. Marx, as I always like to say, agrees with the Chicago School of Economics about capitalism almost entirely except how things end, right? <laughs> that is, he agrees that the, the genius of capitalism is to incentivize people to develop the productive forces to the maximum extent possible. Why? Because it generates profit. And what is capitalism about? Capitalism is about, this is the fundamental rationality of capitalism, right? You can't be a capitalist if you try to depart from this. It's to use your capital to generate profit, right? To generate more income and wealth. If you don't do that, you cease to be a functional capitalist, right? If I run a factory and you run a factory, right? And we're both making the same widgets, okay? But you're nicer than me and you feel bad for your workers and thinks, you know, I really ought to pay them, you know, more than the market rate. Right, they're currently getting twenty-two fifty an hour. I'm going to pay them thirty-two fifty so they can live better. Okay, so you are the proverbial kind-hearted capitalist. Okay, now I'm a son of a bitch. I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not going to pay more than I have to pay for these workers, right? You're going to start paying more, and either that extra expenditure is going to come out of your profit margin, right? Or your prices for your widgets are going to have to go up. And of course, at some point, you're probably going to nudge up the prices of your widgets a little, right? But as soon as you do that, people are going to buy my widgets rather than yours. So in other words, the, the cruel hearted capitalist, the one who's being a rational capitalist, right, is going to come out ahead here, right? Because why? Because that's how the entire system works. If you don't deploy your capital in such a way as to generate more profit than your competitors, your competitors will destroy you. Okay. And that's globalization in a nutshell, right? Um, one of the, you know, one of the few true things Trump said during the presidential campaign was that one of the three or two or three, right? <laughs> there were a few. There were a few. You know, he's why yeah, the sky he said, is blue. Uh, it's warm in the summer. <laughs> he did say foreigners were taking your jobs, right? Right. He was right, correct about that. Right, foreigners right. are, in fact, the trade deals, NAFTA and the others, do mean that foreigners are taking jobs that right. weren't done in America. Right. What he's too stupid to understand is that, you know, unless he's about to become a Marxist-Leninist, which I think is very unlikely, um, there's no way around that. Capital will move to wherever the cheapest labor is available, right. assuming that the costs aren't too great for getting the products, you know, back to market somewhere. Right. Okay. Right. So, so this is the fundamental logic of capitalism that creates this powerful incentive, unlike any other economic system, for people to try to exploit capital, to develop their productive powers, to develop technology, right? so that they can get more, right? Accumulate more wealth, accumulate more profit, okay? So this is the, the genius of capitalism. And Marx thinks it's genius because he doesn't think you can have an alternative to capitalism until you have tremendous productive power, until you can produce more of the things that human beings need than they can possibly consume, as it were, right? Uh, and this is an important aspect of, of Marx, and it was... You know, it was a, it was a strand of kind of 19th century utopianism. Though Marx was very critical of, you know, the people who self-identified as utopians. But the thought in the 19th century was between 1750 and 1850, Europe was transformed in terms of what we could produce. It was unbelievable, right? You know, we go from being, you know, largely agricultural to being largely an industrial economy. Wealth explodes, okay? Um, and to many people, including Marx, it seemed that, you know, capitalism, right, was on the verge of producing, you know, the manna from heaven scenario, where the productive power is so great, right, that what you need is available, right? It's, it's produced. It can be produced very easily, okay? Now, Marx was wrong about this, like all the utopians, right? I mean, the productive power has increased enormously between 1850 and 1950. It hasn't increased quite as enormously between 1950 and today, but it's still increased even more, right? And we see this, you know, in ordinary life. That is, technology is displacing human labor power, right? That's the familiar story of our times. This is exactly what Marx was talking about. You know, you're old enough to remember when you go to the supermarket and there was someone standing at the register, right? Sometimes there still is, right? But now often you check yourself out, okay? Um, now often you don't even go to the market, right? You go online, right? And invisible people, 
Yeah. Who knows how many? Fill your order and deliver it to you. Okay. So this is this story of, of capitalism. Now, go back to Hegel for a second here. Marx thinks that the contradictions that bring about social and economic transformation have nothing to do with contradictions in people's forms of consciousness in their ideas, right? It's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with what he calls material contradictions. It has to do with a situation in which the property rights that people have, right, in a particular society, the relations of production, are not conducive to fully developing the productive potential that technology makes available. Right. Again, let me give you just a very stylized story to illustrate this. Think of the transition from feudalism, right, to industrial capitalism. Again, this is crude because we're talking about something that happened over a couple hundred years. So under feudalism, right, feudal serfs, they didn't even own their tools. Right. They didn't even own the land, right? All they owned was the labor power, which they could exchange for the right to have some tools and to cultivate some of the land for themselves, okay? And they're spread out in these various, you know, feudal kingdoms all over Europe, okay? And then, lo and behold, right, and the lords have tremendous property rights, right? They not only have property in the labor power of the serfs, they own the land, they own the tools, okay? And now, along comes a nascent new form of technology, right? Let's say steam power, right? We can use steam power things to maximize, you know, extend the reach of human labor power a hundred times, right? We get someone feeding, you know, this the steam mill, they can produce a heck of a lot more than any surf on the farm. Okay. Right. So there's a new technology available, but the existing property rights under feudalism are completely ill-placed to exploiting it, right? What the nascent capitalists, right, what the new bourgeois class, as Marx called, the, the growing capitalist class needs, is they need those feudal serfs off right, the land and into the city where they can sell their labor power for a living wage, often a starvation wage, but a wage, so that they can work in the factories that can exploit this new productive technology. Right, right? and that's what happened. I mean, that's And that's what happened, right? And that's what Marx means by class conflict, right? The, the nascent bourgeoisie, the nascent capitalist class, right, had competing economic financial interests with the old feudal lords and the old aristocracy, right? They needed to be able to purchase the labor power of those people for money. They needed them off the farms and in the cities, right, in order to take advantage of the productive capacity that technology now made available to them. So at some point, the relations of production characteristic of feudalism, the system of property rights there was wholly inadequate to what capitalist technology, the technology that um, at the beginning of industrial capitalism would make possible. And why was there class conflict? Simple economic self-interest, right? The nascent bourgeoisie said, we get really rich. Indeed, we'll even get into the House of Lords eventually, right? If we can just get a hold of labor power, right? to run these factories and produce these goods, which then thanks to Britain's domination of the seas will sell all over the world. Right. And so we've got to struggle against, right. To change things in order to exploit this productive capacity. Those are the contradictions Marx says 
that make things happen in the world, right? And notice the picture is one in this case that does appeal to just the kind of, you know, naked self-interest people have in being able to exploit the technological capacities that they find available to them, or that in some cases they create themselves. What what, what happens? So so I'm starting to, I'm starting to get a dim notion that perhaps the Marxist story really is going to be resonant soon when we've automated to the point to which there is no more human productive capacity that needs to be brought out, right? I mean, in other words, what's going to happen when there really is nothing for anybody to do, right? Okay, good. And that's, I'm, I'm glad you have drawn the correct conclusion. The correct dim notion. <laughs> Marx's story is not primarily, you know, a normative one. It's meant to describe the logic of capitalism and indeed the logic of all productive and economic development and to show us where it necessarily heads, right? Because remember, you know, those who own capital need to deploy capital to generate profit, okay? Therefore, if they can use technology to displace human labor costs, that's what they will do, right? And the end point of this scenario is exactly what you described. And now this is what Marx views as the fundamental contradiction of capitalism. The genius of capitalism is to develop productive power exponentially, better than any other economic system in the history of the world, right? This sounds like a Republican talking point, but this is this is Marx's point. Right. Capitalism does it better than any other system. Okay. Um, so it develops productive capacity, but because productive capacity, productive power has only one purpose, namely generating profit, the capitalists, as it were, self-destruct because as they gradually eliminate the need for human labor, right, they gradually eliminate the need of most human beings to purchase anything that capitalist productive power produces, right? So we've got enormous productive power together with mass immiseration. That is, the majority of people with either no income, very little income, right? And all of capital is devoted to this chasing profit but you can't actually generate the profit unless there are people there who can buy things. Okay. Now you could get a scenario. You remember the movie? Did you see the movie Elysium? No, I've not. Okay. This is, this is one where all the super rich have live in this big, you know, spaceship, which is like, but it's, it's like beautiful. It's like a, you know, they have swimming pools and the weather's perfect. Right. And the earth is populated with miserable people. but that's the logic of capitalism right they didn't present it that way right is that you could just have a situation where those who have ownership of capital you know continue to have a great deal of wealth right and they control the productive power and maybe they need a few people you know let's assume you know they need bodyguards or whatnot okay um and then most people are immiserated This is what Marx thought was the logic of capitalism because capital is always in pursuit of ways to reduce costs to increase profit. And one of the standing costs for capital is always human labor power. Right. Yet human labor power is how most of us get money to participate in the, in the capital system. Right. Right. So this is why he thinks it's destined to end badly. Now he takes over from Hegel, the kind of Whiggish optimism, right? Namely that it will necessarily end in 
the transformation of society. He called it communism. It doesn't matter what you call it. But the basic idea was you take all this productive power that capitalism has bequeathed us. That was the genius of capitalism. And now you simply utilize it to produce everything that people need in order to lead fulfilling human lives. Hence Marx's famous image about, you know, you could tend cattle in the morning, write poetry in the afternoon. Right, right, right. Do blogging heads TV in the evening, right? I mean, you know, so Marx had this vision of harnessing the productive capacity of capitalism in order to make possible widespread human flourishing, to free people up for what he called genuinely free labor. And by, and this was an important ideal for Marx. Genuinely free labor is work you do not because you need the money, but because it's work you want to do. It meets, you know, some deep human need, right? This is something you really, you know, right. want to do. Right. Most labor that we do, right? Um, most human labor power, um, is not free labor in that sense. It's done simply for the, the money, right? I think it's fair to say as university professors, ours is more of a mix, right? That is some of the things we do. I think we would do anyway. Um, I don't want to speak for you, but I would imagine grading papers is probably not on the list of things you would do if you didn't need to, right, earn a wage, okay? Um, so jobs can differ in this regard, but most of the labor that human beings engage in is not free but necessary in order to survive, right? And let me, let me, let me ask you that's all people have to sell. Let me ask you two questions before you yeah. go on. Um, for, first of all, um, so do you see some, do you see the, 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 these very embryonic proposals and ideas that we're hearing now for a universal basic income as being a sort of a, a Marxian kind of idea of trying to transform? I say, okay, what do we do now when we don't need human labor anymore, when we have automation and we're just producing so much value without human labor? Is, is UBI something like a move in the direction that you think someone like a, a Marx would have thought, okay, that's one of the ways you can transform this situation? Well, so here's what I think. I, I think it is clearly in response to tendencies of capitalism that Marx was the first to diagnose and diagnose very clearly, right? And so it is an attempt to respond to that. Um, it is not going to be a successful attempt um, under capitalism. I think that's what Marx would predict. It's what I would predict, right? Um, <clears throat> it may be a stopgap. Right? It may ameliorate some of the, the worst effects. But if you look at the proposals for universal basic income, they ain't talking about a lot of income. Yeah, right? yeah they're, not, they're not big enough to be really uh, impactful. Right. So it's, you know, um, and, and the question is why? Well, because at some point, capital, right, you know, those who own capital have a disproportionate influence on the political process, Right. You know, Bernie Sanders wasn't the first person to to observe that. Political scientists who've studied it, you know, can document it very clearly. It's very clear in the United States, but in other democracies, capitalist democracies too. Um, at some point, capital balks, right? Because this goes back to my joke at the beginning, right? There's only one kind of rationality under capitalism, namely rational self-interest. Right. Because after all, if you're the good-natured capitalist, you see, that was your problem, Dan, in my story. <laughs> you stopped acting in a rational self-interest. Right, right. And started thinking too much about your workers. That's why you're going to go out of business. Right. right? Um, you know, so the, and this is part of Marx's, you know, thought is that, this is a way in which the form of production and the relations of production influence 
people's ideology, the ideas that people have, right? Under capitalism, it comes to seem that there's only one kind of rationality, namely instrumental rationality in pursuit of your self-interest, right? And you look at modern-day economics, that's how they talk, right? Yeah. They, in that regard, they give expression very clearly, right, to the basic um, ideology of, of capitalism. Um, you know, now... I'm actually a big believer in instrumental rationality. I think it's the only clear concept of rationality we have, but one can clearly see historical circumstances in the past and one can imagine them in the future in which the reasonable thing isn't necessarily the instrumentally rational thing to promote your self-interest. Right. Right. Um, If we didn't all live essentially, you know, locked in a struggle for economic survival, right? Our struggles are muted a bit by things like tenure and so on, right? Um, but you know, all the, the students going on the job market, right? They're locked in that fundamental battle for economic survival. Um, if that wasn't the state of affairs under which we live, other things might come to seem reasonable and right. rational, right? Right. right. And that, but what those will be, hard to say, okay? Right. Right. But one of Marx's basic ideas is that the, the forms of the, the forces of production and the relations of production very profoundly shape the way the ideas people have, the moral and political ideas they have, what they think is reasonable. And, that just seems obviously true. I mean, I mean, I, you know, you're not going to have to, you're not going to get pushed back from me. Right. I mean, um, that seems non-political, right? I mean, that just seems sort of a basic psychological point. Right. I mean, it seems to me. Well, so Marx's particular form of it assigns the the explanation for the psych the psychological fact to facts about the the way people produce their form of life, right? And that part of it is a little more controversial, but there are a lot of versions of that out there. I mean, the whole Stanford School of Classical Archaeology now, which is basically, I mean, they're materialists or they're kind of Marxists, right? They want to say that um, this is people like Ian Morris that you can understand the morals, the moral codes of different uh, periods of human civilization, West and East, in terms of how they extract energy from nature. Right. right? That's the thesis. You change the way you extract energy from nature, right, from, say, being, you know, hunters and gatherers to relying on fossil fuel, you change the moralities of those civilizations. Okay? That's essentially a kind of Marxist thesis, a variation on Marxist. Um, you know, there's a materialist movement in anthropology um, that takes a similar approach that tries to explain how taboos, religious taboos arise in response to economic circumstances, right? You know, why do, this was Marvin Harris, if I think I'm remembering this rightly, why don't, um, why don't Hindus eat uh, cows? Well, it turns out, right, that the characteristic during the period when Hinduism developed, it was characteristic of the climate to go from, you know, feast to famine, right? You would have long dry spells, right? In which during the dry spells, it would be very tempting to have a nice burger, right? (laughs) But if you ate your cows during the dry spells, they wouldn't be there to do the labor when you could plant crops again. And so you'd starve anyway, right? Ah, so Marvin Harris says nothing like an absolute religious taboo on eating cows to preserve civilization under circumstances <laughs> like that. And we can ask, you know, how did the individual psychology of that go? But it is a striking fact right? yeah. 
that you can see how, you know, eating your cows would be bad news, right? It would be so, a bad long-term strategy. So. A bad long-term strategy. It's not in your long-term self-interest. And you could have appealed to long-term self-interest, but you know what? A lot better than long-term self-interest is a it's religious God. It's God. <laughs> religious prohibitions really work much better than think about the long term. So, all right. So, so, so I think you know this is a pretty darn good primer. Um, maybe we'll sift over um, and talk. T- tell tell us a little bit about what happens to Marxism after the Second World War and the the, the Frankfurt School, the development of what is known as the New Left. Um, the, the college, New Left, SDS, all this sort of stuff. Could you give a little story about this Okay. in relation to the classical Marxism you just described? Okay. I, I will give, a again, a kind of potted history, but I think a defensible one. Now, it starts before World War II, um, uh, but then it does indeed continue after, after World War II. Um, Lukács... A Hungarian named Georgi Lukács um, writes a book in 1923 called History and Class Consciousness. Lukács is basically a left young Hegelian, though he thinks of himself as a Marxist, right? Um, he proposes a critique of bourgeois ideology, the ideology of liberal capitalism. He wants to show that it's contradictory. This is just like Bruno Bauer all over again. So Lukács kind of brings Hegel back into the Marxist tradition, Right. You know, Marx, although he shared Hegel's view of history, he disagreed with Hegel about all the mechanisms, right, and about what was really important and what it was you were supposed to do if you wanted to be, you know, a critic of the existing order, right? Criticizing ideas, being a philosophy professor wasn't the thing. Right, right. You had to understand how capitalism works and you had to organize to teach people, right, to understand how capitalism works, right? So they can see what's actually happening to them and also see what the potential alternatives are given their historical situation. Lukács brings Hegel back in. Um, The early Frankfurt School, this is people like Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, though they continue to work, you know, after World War II, especially Adorno does quite a lot of his work after World War II. Um, so they're Germans, Horkheimer and Adorno, Antonio Gramsci in Italy um, is, you know, not exactly part of the Frankfurt, the official Frankfurt school, um, but represents this development in 20th century Marxism that you can understand roughly as follows, which is their thinking, right? And now, in my view, they're still, they failed to realize something that Marx was clearly mistaken about, namely that capitalism had not exhausted itself. Capitalism had a lot more productive power to develop. But their view was capitalism had done it and the working classes hadn't revolted, right? Indeed, in Germany, right, they, some of them flipped to the Nazis, right? Now, actually, you know, what actually happened was that the Protestant working classes flipped to the Nazis in the 1932 election. The Catholics did not. Interesting fact about that political scientists have brought attention to. Um, but there's no question, right, that Hitler was a beneficiary of the Great Depression, right? The existing Protestant p- political parties were discredited, right? Hitler in 1932 did not run on a platform of anti-Semitism. He ran on a platform of war reparations are crippling the country, and which wasn't true, 
and we need to provide jobs. Sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) You know, he was responding to something very real, and Protestant working class voters switched. But in general, the European working classes, while some had aligned with communist parties, there hadn't been general communist revolution. Germany, along with Britain, the two most developed capitalist societies, Germany was the one Marx thought was most ripe for revolution, that in the United States. (laughs) It, It hadn't happened. And so the Frankfurt School writers, Gramsci, begin thinking, well, why? What happened? Right? And one of the things they focus on, and this is what often now gets travels under the label of neo-Marxism, or I guess cultural Marxism, it sometimes gets called. I don't want to give too much credit to these. Yeah, we're going to get to these people later. Um, 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 but I, I, want the, I want the serious story first, and then we can okay. talk about how it's used in an unserious way. Right? Got it. Um, <laughs> They begin to focus on culture. They say, to what extent right, mm. does um, the cultural domination of the capitalist class help to render politically impotent the proletariat or the working classes? Right? Mm. Um, and so they, they become very concerned with this. So Horkheimer and Adorno famously diagnosed what they call the culture industry, right? This is Hollywood in 1943. Hollywood in 2018 is even worse, right? Yeah. What they yeah. notice is that you know, you can market certain um, plot lines, certain melodies, and then remarket them with slight variations, right? So think of the whole sequel business. This was just beginning, but they diagnosed it, right? What are sequels? We take a fairly simple plot people are familiar with, Shrek 1, okay? Right. We like Shrek. He's nice. Right. Shrek 2, Shrek 3, Right. Um, same thing, you know, with, you know, so when, you run out, when you run out of sequels, then you do reboots, right? You do reboots, right? You do the whole fucking thing over again, right? I mean, like all the television shows that, you know, we watched in the sixties and seventies, early, they're all turned into movies now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, who would have thought, I mean, some of them never should, probably shouldn't have been TV shows. They're back. <laughs> um, but what they, what they said is, look, there's a way in which, you know, this kind of, it's the old bread and circuses, right? How does the Roman emperor keep things going? Puts on a good circus. Nothing more enjoyable than seeing the Christians thrown to the lions on Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Okay, the capitalist entertainment culture industry churns out familiar stuff that people already kind of like and they sort of know. And they churn it out nonstop and it keeps everybody, you know, the images, everyone's sort of like, you know, religion used to be the old People. Now it's, you know, the sequel industry or the pop music industry, you know. I mean, I'm a big fan of rock and roll, as you know from the blog, but there's no doubt that there's endless repetition. I mean, the Rolling Stones had only about four songs, yeah. and they did multiple variations on yeah. it. ABC's yeah. even worse. Okay, so there's that. You know, Gramsci says, right, you know, the capitalist class can sort of take control of the whole cultural ideology, right? Um, and this idea had been there in Marx, but Gramsci emphasizes it even more, right? So that, you know, take Steve Bannon and Breitbart, right? Who think of themselves as populists. Well, you know, Marx, in a sense, was a populist, but these are right-wing populists, right? Um, that is, they are promoting a set of ideas that are actually not, right, 
advantageous for the economic interests of the people that they're, they're peddling this stuff to. And that's a familiar phenomenon that, you know, people talk about even in the mainstream media. In, yeah. In, yeah. The what's wrong with Kansas analysis. That's sort right. of, exactly. Uh, that is the, probably the classic contemporary yeah. reference point for that. Right. right. That basic idea. Okay. So they begin to think we need to pay a little more attention to, to culture. Um, they become more interested partly through the influence of Lukash in, in the criticism of ideas, exposing, you know, bourgeois ideas as, you know, incoherent, right? The old left Hegelian thing. It sounds like a little research. It almost sounds a little bit like the Frankfurt School thought, or maybe even demonstrated, that Marx had been a little wrong in the critique of Hegel, that the that ideas really do matter. They can have a, a profound effect, right? Well, it, it, in a way, that was part of their way into it. Now, Marx didn't deny that ideas mattered. What he denied so he thought the uh, uh, the ideology of any society served to stabilize and legitimize the relations of production, the property rights. Okay, so ideologies serve a, folk, uh, a function of shoring things up. What he what he thought was you don't overturn a social order simply by criticizing the ideas. Okay, right. that's not enough. Right. Okay? Um, but, but, but it seems like the, the Frankfurt School critique, what they sort of pointed out was, yeah, but it's also not enough to just operate at the ground level because the ideas function as a kind of a, as a support system for right. the, uh. Well, that, that would be, the, that would be, I think, the right defense of, of, of this kind of move. And there was obviously something to it, right? Um, you know, so there's, there's a real debate to be had here about the relative contribution of ideology and the critique of ideology. Right to the maintenance of some some you know socioeconomic uh, system. Right. Um, there was a more philosophical dimension to it. I mean, it starts with Lukash sort of reviving the the left young Hegelian ideas, um, but you also see this very clearly in Horkheimer um, in an early essay he wrote on critical theory in the late 1930s. I, I studied that in college. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Horkheimer. Has a, has a very strong philosophical motivation too, which is he thinks that, um, he wants to defend, um, the Kantian view of reason against the Humean or instrumental view. He wants to say that reasoning is not simply about the means to our pre-given ends, it can be about the ends as well. Okay? So, he's, he's wedded to this Kantian idea. In a way, Marx never was, right? Marx just, you know, although he's trained in philosophy, he just came to see all of this philosophy as kind of ideological excrescence, right? Bubbling up and beside the point, okay? Horkheimer comes right back to Kant. And after World War II, Habermas picks this side of the Frankfurt School up. And Habermas is basically, you know, he's a Kantian, right? He's concerned with the question, right? Um, what rationally ought we to want and do, right? Now, he never tells us, which is a shame. He tells us the conditions under which we would arrive, right, at um, rational conclusions about what we want and what we should do, namely what he calls in his early work an ideal speech situation, what he later characterizes communicative ethics. It's this, it's a kind of process view, right? If we were to debate with each other as free and equal rational citizens, we could arrive at a view about what really ought to be done and without you know inequities of power and you know certain voices being suppressed and, and so on and and so forth and you know Habermas has a lot in common with Rawls 
right? Yeah, I was there obvious affinities, and they debated and discussed with each other later on. Very, very far removed from Marx, right? There's nothing in Marx that looks like the Rawlsian theory of justice. Right. Marx is not interested in giving you a normative theory about why capitalism is unjust. He doesn't care, right? He thinks capitalism has its genius. It does something very well. And you have to understand where its logic will be taking us, right? Uh, you know, he has, I think, the simple but plausible view that if capitalism really immiserates people, you won't need a good philosophical normative argument to explain to them why they might prefer something else. Right? Yeah. Um, <coughs> okay. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, Marcuse uh, continues more of the, the, the culture critique line of Horkheimer and Adorno. Um, and he's you know, particularly influential on the student movement, Marcuse. He had a huge, well, he got, he certainly got picked up and became the darling of, right, the, the student movement, you know. Um, as one professor once said to me, he's being, I think, a little dismissive, you know, that uh, Marcuse thought that, you know, the, uh, the revolution was going to come through the uh, college students and the Jefferson Airplane. Um, because Marcuse, right, Marcuse is very interested in the way in which ideology has disabled people from accurately assessing their interests. And this is a crucial thing about the Frankfurt School, which they do share with Marx, which is Marx thinks there are facts about what are in people's interests, qua human beings, right? And you can be mistaken about it, right? Plato thought that. Hegel thought that. It's certainly a familiar view in the history of philosophy. Marcuse certainly thinks that. He thinks that capitalism, that part of what makes capitalist domination pernicious is that it creates people's sense of what they need, right? In a way that only capitalism could satisfy, right? So that you can't really have a good human life if you don't have a choice between 27 deodorants, right? You know, exactly the things that capitalism is really good at, right? Marketing a huge amount of slight variations on right. it. Um, and right, so he thought, you know, Marcuse shared the pessimism about the proletariat that Adorno, Horkheimer, I'm sorry, I'm going to... That's fine. I had thought the ringer was off, but apparently not. Shows how little I understand about technology. <laughs> um, sorry about that. No worries. Um yeah, so, I mean, Marcuse thought that this was one of the really pernicious things that capitalism did, is that it put people into a state of mind, a conception of what they need and want, right, that only capitalism could possibly could possibly meet right. their needs. Right. So he gives up on the working class. He thinks the students are the enlightened, you know, population, right? You can see why this would have appealed to college students, right? He thinks that, you know, rock and roll, you know, with, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, free love, represents a kind of shattering of, you know, sort of the repression that capitalism requires in order to work because, you know, after all, if you're doing a lot of drugs and having a lot of sex, you're less likely to show up nine to five, right? So, so this is, you know, so Marcuse is more of, is in a way closer to uh, Horkheimer and Adorno than is Habermas. Habermas just picks up the Kantian angle and, and you know, in his later work, becomes entirely interested in that. Did Marcuse really not see? I mean, because already in the 60s, I mean, the commodification of all these things that he's celebrating, I mean, I, 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 it seems to me either a tremendous blind spot 
Or was he being disingenuous? Could he have not seen that? Well, it's a question, you know, I, I think he probably, he didn't appreciate the extent to which um, the rock and roll industry was itself part of the culture industry. Um, but remember, you know, the, the time period I'm talking about is sort of between 1964 and 1969. You know, One Dimensional Man appears in 64. Right. An essay on liberation appears in 1969. Do you want to understand the Frankfurt School? That's the single best book to read because Marcuse says clearly what Adorno says unintelligibly. <laughs> he makes it very clear that he thinks human beings have certain interests, that their liberation requires satisfaction of these interests, that capitalism imposes an ideology that obscures what these interests are. But if you just think of that period in rock and roll history, right, it is a very big transformation, right? Just this week, 50 years ago, Bob Dylan picks up an electric guitar, very controversial, right? right? In 66, right, the Beatles stopped turning out, you know, hit singles and start producing albums, right? Right. Um, you know, th- there is a sense in which the rock and roll of that period certainly looked new, right? Looked like a different form of, of musical expression. Now, it wasn't. This is partly what I'm doing on the blog currently, right? I mean, it was basically, you know, developing the tradition of blues developed by African-American musicians. Um, and, you know, so yes, maybe it was naive not to see the way in which, in fact, rock and roll was completely commodified as well, right? Right, and, and that the protest music... The protest music in in, 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 ten, in five years now is in car commercials, right? I mean, exactly. you know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, I, there's no there's no type of extreme countercultural art form that isn't almost immediately commodified. Right. Uh, it and seems to me exactly as Marx yeah. would have predicted. Yeah. And in this regard, I think Horkheimer and Adorno were a little more clear eyed about this. Um, you know, Marcuse was a nice guy. He was an optimist. He liked people. <laughs> Um, but I think he was a little naive about yeah, it. Yeah. I think he was naive about about this particular um, issue. All right, so that is that is one strand, important strand in sort of what's called Western Marxism in the in the twentieth century. By the time you get to Habermas, you know Habermas would have been recognizable to Marx only as the kind of philosophy that he thought was worthless. Right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely clear is the case. So you've traveled very far by the time you get to get to Habermas. Um, uh, and, you know, which is why it was good we started with so-called classical Marxism, or yeah. at least with what Marx himself yeah. thought, right? And yeah. was trying, the views he was trying to develop in the mid so let, let, let's let's talk a little bit about app, 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 some applications um, into contemporary uh, disputes that are going on. So, um to the extent to which we'll call the Frankfurt School, is it neo-Marxism? Neo-Marxism or, you know, it's sometimes cultural Marxism, right? Okay. Because they do lay a heavy emphasis on what culture is like under capitalism and how different cultural forces help maintain a capitalist right. society. As a way of explaining why the, why the, the, the culmination and, the, and the, the breaking of capitalism didn't occur, um, that in a sense it had spawned a cultural industry that was sustaining it. Um, and of course, as you've said, the whole thing was kind of wrongheaded because it was predicated on the mistaken assumption that capitalism had exhausted itself when clearly it had, clearly in hindsight, it had not. Right. Okay. That's right. So I, I actually don't share the fundamental diagnosis of these Frankfurt School people. I mean, right. I think they're right to call attention to the way different forms of ideology help sustain capitalism. But I also think they, um, you know, it's, they misjudge the timing. 
Marx yeah. is absolutely clear that there's no point in having an alternative to capitalism unless you have massive productive power, right? right. right. Unless you have the, what I was calling the manna from heaven scenario, right? Yeah. Where you push the button, yeah. right? In order to have the things you need to sustain the form. Yes. And, and let me ask you just your personal view on this. Um, when we get to the point of near 100% automation where there's r- virtually no need for human labor, will anything like a culture industry be able to protect it, sustain it? In other words, did, did the Frankfurt School extend too much causal power efficacy to the culture industry? Well, that you, you, you've well expressed what roughly my view is, right, which is that the, the culture industry is only possible because, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, the capitalist countries made n- enormous concessions to their working classes, right? Um, those are now being, you know, eviscerated, and the trends are very clear that, you know, the period, you know, 19, you know, 50 to 1980 was a special period in the history of Western capitalism. Um, things are going the other way, and it, largely because of what's called globalization, but this is exactly what Marx thought. He also thought you couldn't really have sustainable alternatives to capitalism locally for the same reason you can't be the kind-hearted capitalist, right? Right. Because otherwise capital just moves, okay? But you can't have a culture industry if most people are immiserated, right? And, you know, you can see why Marx, you know, in 1850 and his, you know, colleague and co-author Friedrich Engels, who's heir to a, you know, Manchester, you know, factory, who wrote a famous study of the English working classes. He went out among the workers, right? Um, life was pretty brutal. They would not have had time or resources for the Jefferson airplane records. Right, that's right. <laughs> um, they barely, you know, they had some time to get drunk and occasionally, you know, copulate, and that was about it, <laughs> right? Um, they lived quite desperate existences. Um, so culture industry, you know, is is a phenomenon you know, the mid 20th century, which they correctly identify. I mean, it is weird the way capitalism commodifies cultural products. Um, and it continues to this day. Um, you know, the question, you know, is, well, what's, what's the time horizon? Right? Yeah. The last 30 to 40 years have not been so good for the formerly affluent capitalist societies that used to have the proverbial big middle class. Right. Um, it's probably going to be worse a hundred years from now. Right. How bad? I don't know. This is right. uh, I'm not I'm not good at prophecy in that regard. I yeah. think it, you'd have to talk to a more sophisticated Marxist economist about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, but all the trend lines are basically the ones. Everything is happening in the way Marx's original theory thought it would happen, right. but he was completely wrong about the time frame. Right. He was just here. He felt prey. Although if he'd lived longer, I mean, from what you've described, if he'd lived longer, I could have seen him easily self-correcting once he saw, you know, pretty hard to imagine even in the middle of the industrial revolution, just how far the technology would go. And that's because of micro, because of micro, you know, what's, what's the word? Micro miniaturization. Miniaturization. In other other words, it required a scientific understanding that he couldn't have had. And um, I, I, I think, if he saw this automation thing coming, now that really seems to me, that seems to me the breaking part to where you no longer need human labor. Well, remember, he saw the beginnings of it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. factories did yeah. amplify human labor power and displace some of it, yeah. right? Tools that were familiar had done some of that, right? Robots, 
they weren't there, right? And, and you the know, machines making themselves. I right? said run the machines in the factory. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Which is a reality in, in most factories yeah. now. Yeah. There's still some human labor power, but there's much less than there was previously. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. One hopes so. You know, Mark spent the last 10 years of his life, you know, going to the British Library each day and doing research for his final, you know, big book on capital, right? To right. try, you know, to sort of develop, you know, put together a, you know, a, put it all together into a historical explanation of what had happened, of where we are and where it's going, documenting it very carefully. So, you know, it was a, it was a classic scholarly undertaking. Right. <laughs> okay, so, so in light of what you said about Marxism and the Frankfurt School, neo-Marxism, um, the, the current critique that we're getting out of the so-called members of the so-called intellectual dark web just seems to me utterly, completely ignorant, right? Because... Here's the story that they tell, and of course the most the most visible one is Jordan Peterson, but there's others. The story that they tell is something along the lines of, well, what the neo-Marxists did was they replaced uh, class with uh, racial and uh, gender and sexual identities, and that's what gives us the identity politics that we have now, that the identity politics we have now is a result of uh, the transformation affected by the neo-Marxists. Now, as you just taught us, uh, that's not at all what the neo-Marxists did. The, the, the whole point of cultural Marxism was to explain why um, uh, a capitalism hadn't come to the end that, that they thought it would and that it had to do with this idea of, of reaffirming the importance of ideas and especially of a culture industry and sustaining. And sustaining. So I've read things of yours and others that actually have presented Marxist critiques of identity politics. And so maybe you can talk us through this tangled mess that's right. very much in the current uh, uh, discourse, public discourse right now. Good. Well, it is a tangled mess, um, and my familiarity with it is largely limited to a very slight familiarity with Jordan Peterson, who I find extremely tiresome, so hard to listen to for very long. Um, uh, but... Um, I mean, what you said is basically, uh, I, I think, right. Um, I mean, the Frankfurt School, Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, um, e even Marcuse, I mean, he was maybe a little more interested in other forms of identity, but they largely remain focused on class as the, as, as the crucial thing. You know, let's go back just to Marx him, himself in this regard. Um, Marx himself is... You know, the, the other thing that drives me crazy about Jordan Peterson is they also, they say cultural Marxism and postmodernism, right? Um, they tend to run those three things together. They have nothing to do. And they have nothing to do with each other, right? I mean, as I said, Horkheimer was committed to a Kantian conception of reason, as is Habermas. You know, Hegel is not a postmodernist. Hegel certainly thinks forms of consciousness are relative to particular historical epics, but he thinks we make progress, right? right? And we make rational progress when we, you know, move beyond certain forms of consciousness. Marx is a thinker of the Enlightenment, right? Um, he believes in science, right? Believes in natural science, um, and he believes that there can be a science of human society, right? If done correctly, he believes human beings have certain, you know, typical essential characteristics, um, that there are certain conditions under which they can flourish, 
This is most, you know, famously developed in very early work from 1844, you know, uh, the 1844 manuscripts where he talks about alienation, where he talks about the centrality of, you know, labor, free labor, free work, as he would come to call it, to a fulfilling human life that is engaging work because you want to do it, not because you need to to survive. Um, and he thinks that class, Marx, of course, thinks that class is the primary parameter around which struggle right, is um, organized in any particular society where class is a matter of what relationship you stand into to the existing forces of, um, of production. Um, the so-called cultural Marxism of the Frankfurt School doesn't get us into... I mean, maybe we ought to say something about what's involved in identity politics. Let's actually start with that because, you know, like the term neoliberalism, it gets used in different ways. Sometimes it's just a pure term of abuse. Um, you know, I think identity politics in the sense we are talking about or in the sense somebody like Peterson is um, talking about does trace to the 1960s student movement, right? <clears throat> um, and it essentially in the 70s, it essentially involves groups of people whose social identities had been stigmatized, right? Women, African Americans being the most extreme case, lesbian and gay people in the 70s, right? So these were social identities that had been stigmatized, <laughs> rendered illegal in some cases, right? All kinds of burdens had been imposed in virtue of these social identities, Um the initial impulse, right, was to, as it were, affirm and reclaim these identities as something that wasn't stigmatized. That was sort of the initial version. Now, of course, in the African-American case, it was much more than that. It was to actually overturn, right, the legal, right, um, infrastructure of racial oppression, okay? And in that, they were, you know, largely successful, right? You know, it took a while, but they were largely successful, um, took only a hundred years from Reconstruction <laughs> to right. get it right, right. Um, you know. But initially, I think that's what it—that was the characteristic feature. And you know, it's one you can sort of just as a human matter empathize with. You know, I mean, look, as you know, Jews weren't always white people, right? Right. We only became so, white people in America recently, right? <laughs> right. Well, um, sad to say, Hitler and the Holocaust helped. Um, but even as late as the mid 1960s white shoe law firms in New York City on Wall Street would not hire Jews. Right. We're talking about, you know, Harvard, Columbia educated Jews, right? If they hired them, they wouldn't make them partner. You know, it was really quite extraordinary. It was that recent, okay? Um, You know, so, I mean, we've been through this before in America where, you know, um, you know, Hispanics and Mexican Americans in the 70s became more prominent in this regard, though the oppression of Hispanics and Mexican Americans was, you know, never as widespread as it was of African Americans. Though where it was, where it occurred, it was quite severe. Okay. So in that regard, it starts in a very, as it were, admirable impulse. It has now morphed into something that seems to me, from a Marxian point of view, very, very pernicious. And it manifests itself most clearly in what I call diversity blather, right? It manifests itself very clearly in the idea that the only thing that the really crucial thing for social justice is that every position be distributed in a way that reflects that demographic group's representation in the population. Okay? Um, 
And this extends all the way into the heart of capitalism itself. And this is the joke Adolf Reed, the, the Penn political scientist, um, and, you know, who's African-American, but also a, a Marxist theorist, you know, he's made this point many times, you know, it begins to sound like, you know, as long as all the Silicon Valley billionaires, right, as long as 12% are African-American, 15% Hispanic, and 3% gay, and, you know, and 1% bisexual, whatever it is, right, that somehow that's a just world, right, that that represents an important form of human progress. Um, and from the Marxian point of view, right, this is to obscure something that's much more important. Here's the simple way to put it. It obscures the fact that the system in which we are living is one whose essential logic is committed committed to eliminating the need for most of us. Right? Yeah. That's the really crucial thing about the situation we're in. Um, the distribution of jobs according to race or ethnicity, you know, is a little bit of a sideshow from that point of view. Worse than a sideshow because it's kind of a distraction, right? And, you know, as we all know, it's led to all kinds of, you know, kind of, you know, perverse intellectual gymnastics to, you know, explain why it is, you know, racial or ethnic diversity is important for universities. Right. And the irony is, you know, I've written about this in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and we know this because of uh, Frank Dobbins, a sociologist at Harvard, the diversity blather, right, was the creation of corporate personnel departments, <laughs> Right. They created it because affirmative action was originally about rectifying, right, de jure racial discrimination, you know, outright, explicit, unembarrassed racial discrimination. And in my view, its most important purpose was compensation. It was compensatory justice. Right. It was meant to compensate a group like no other group in American history who had been, you know, literally enslaved, then subjugated, exploited, denied opportunity, on and on and on and on. Um, in the 1970s, corporate personnel, <laughs> corporate human relations departments said, oh, no, what this is really about is diversity, which is good for business, right? In other words, it had to be turned into something that fit the logic of capital, right? This allows us to maximize profits. We can't maximize profits unless our workforce is racially diverse. And then it becomes ethnically diverse. And then the universities pick it up. And then they try to explain, well, it's because the racial and ethnic diversity of the student body contributes to the educational experience. If you look at the actual evidence, it's, it's thin. It's mixed, right? It yeah. makes some contribution. But, you know, which groups, right? I mean, who gets counted in, in this regard? And this is why we get to this weird situation now where, you know, You've got conservatives, conservative law professors saying, diversity, there need to be more of us in American law schools, okay? Um, so we're very far from what was compensatory justice for, you know, the victims of, you know, grotesque subjugation for 200 years <laughs> to the idea that, you know, we need more rich white conservatives in American law schools. Actually, there's lots of them, but that's a separate issue. Um, you know, that does seem to me a fundamental cheapening of, you know, what's politically and morally important about the situation in which we live. Yeah. Um, you know, again, think, think of the Trump phenomenon, you know, which Trump phenomenon is in significant part symptomatic of a lot of these 
developments that have been going on, that is the decline of the labor union movement, the decline of a middle class, the decline of a stable working class existence, the displacement of traditional working class jobs by technology, right? The big one is going to be, by the way, automated trucks, right? Yeah. Trucking industry is still one of the few industries left, thanks to very strong unions, right? You know, with occasional ties to the mafia, but that's why they're still strong, right? <laughs> it's a job you can get with a high school education. Yeah. And it pays decently. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's roughly 3 million jobs. They're going to disappear when automated cars, you know, automated trucks finally come into being, which will probably depends what you read the next 25 years. Not unlikely. Okay. Trump, you know, there's no doubt that Trump appealed to racist voters in certain parts of the country and that that mobilized them. You know, I don't want to quarrel with that, but you know, the, the thing, the thing that gave him the election, given the screwy electoral college system, right. Were the votes in um, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Rust and Belt. Wisconsin. Rust Belt. Yeah. And in, in Pennsylvania in particular, this is where I've seen the, the research on this. A large number of the working class union household voters who went for Trump had voted for Obama. Yep. Calling them racist doesn't illuminate anything. No. Um, it misses entirely what's going on, right? You know, they were such racist, they voted for the black guy twice, <laughs> okay? Right. That's obviously not what's going on, right? What's going on with them is they see correctly that nothing really changes in their interest, right? And so they're going to try the guy, you know, who says he's going to change them. And, you know, the thing about Trump is he is a working class guy from Queens, right? Not really working class. That's where, that's where his vulgarity actually is a stre- is plays to his strengths. I mean, right, people don't understand this. I know. Part of the reason he won was because of his vulgarity, right? Yeah. It's that not just. It's not a turnoff for uh, most working class voters. That that's I, right. That's they, right. They don't, they don't really give a fucking shit how you talk, right? That's right. That's it's right. Chrissy college professors who, who care about that. I get this blowback all the time and have for years about, you know, um, on, about the, uh, <clears throat> I, I use tough words, naughty words on the blog, right? Yeah. And, and the poor darlings, you know, <laughs> clutch their necklaces, clutch their pearls. Um, anyway, Trump, uh, you know, Trump flipped these voters. Some of them had been Sanders voters. And, you know, now they made a mistake. I don't know what to say to them. They made a mistake, but at least, you know, nothing's changing. And, you know, people are hopeful. They hope, well, this guy right. says, you know, this guy goes to, uh, you know, to Detroit to speak to all the executives of the major auto companies. And Trump being Trump, you know, he's basically a gangster at heart. We know the type, right? <laughs> this is a certain yeah. New York type. Some of them are actual gangsters. Some of them are just talk like gangsters. Just wannabe gangsters. Wannabe. Yeah. He goes to Detroit and he's meeting with all these auto executives. And he basically says, if you, you know, move your, keep moving your plants out of the country, I'm going to fuck you up the ass with tariffs and make it impossible for you to sell your cars. And I don't think he used the literal phrase, fuck you up the ass, but it's pretty close, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not surprised that played very well in, of course. Um, in union households in the auto industry because I'm sure it's what they're all thinking, right? Is these bastards keep sending the jobs elsewhere, you know, while living in the, you know, their ritzy suburb of Detroit. And so their profits are intact and our jobs have disappeared. So, you know, that was in the electoral college, that was the crucial thing. Yeah. And, you know, Telling people that it's going to be a more just world if, you know, if more professors at Harvard are black, 
you know, or more blacks get Oscars. That's, that's one of my favorite. Oh God. Um, you know, these are not the pressing issues of our time. Right. You know, but it's, it's worse than that, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, I could see an argument that the identity politics actually actively works against a Marxian resolution to some of these problems for the very reason that it divides up people who should be natural allies, right? So, I mean, it seems to me that uh, a a guy living in a a slum in in the Bronx um, has a lot in common with a guy living in Appalachia. Right. In terms of the problems, the family disintegration, the drug abuse, the domestic violence, the, and the, the lack, lack of job, job, the lack of job opportunities, all that stuff. Right? right. And, and I, I agree. I the mean, identity politics divides them all up. So if anything, it's counter to a mark. In other words, it's not only not Marxist, it's anti-Marxist. Right. <laughs> um, that's that's basically the argument for thinking it is. And I, I'm basically inclined to to that view. I mean, it, I'm. This criticism presupposes something, which is that one's class position, right, is the strongest basis for ultimately group solidarity under um, under capitalist conditions, right? Yeah. And that's what I am inclined to think, right? Yeah. Now, you know, the labor movement has at times had a mixed record, um, you know, on these issues, in party to racial segregation and stuff, you know. Um, uh, it hasn't been very good at times on, you know, issues related to the treatment of women and, you know, so on. This is all true. But, you know, in the 1930s, um, uh, you know, the, the people who were, uh, providing lawyers for blacks in the American South, other than the NAACP, was the American Communist Party. Um, and, you know, the struggle against apartheid in South Africa was led by communists, right? Including Nelson Mandela at one time. Right. You may be old enough to remember when Nelson Mandela had a bad reputation. About I remember. Wrestling, I remember. Right? And yeah. Margaret Thatcher denounced him as a radical. Right. Um, anyway, but you know, in a way that was, that was what I would call the correct Marxian position, right? Which right. is that, um, racial gendered and other differences are exacerbated and exploited by capitalism, right, as ways of dividing those who actually have common economic interests. Yeah. Right? Identity politics is almost like a ploy, a kind of like a, you know, a way for the Googles of the world to not look like a bunch of predatory, rapacious capitalists that are destroying the fabric, right? In other words, you know, that they fire James Damore, Right. Then they can say, oh, we're on the side of the angels. We're with the, we're with the downtrodden. We're with the women. You know, nobody who works at Google is oppressed. Right. I mean, I, I, mean, well, I have a feeling some people who work for Google are oppressed, but probably not the software engineers. But not the ones, though, who about. Right. Right. I, but yes, certainly <laughs> by by co-opting the language of social justice, if you want to use, you know, moralized language, by co-opting that strictly for issues of racial, ethnic, gendered diversity, you make it far too easy for um, companies that are the problem. Yeah. Part of the problem. That's right. They yeah. have to be part of the problem yeah. um, uh, to, as it were, you know, give themselves a nice, shiny, moral good guy gleam to them. Um, now, look, you know, we're living under uh, capitalism at the moment. It's not about to uh, disappear in the next, uh, the next election cycle. Um, you know, uh, I'm not particularly 
I'm opposed to diversity blather, <laughs> which I just, you know, it seems to me the curse of the alleged left of our time. It's just become so mindless and nobody even thinks about what they're saying anymore. You know, but I think compensatory justice for African-Americans, I'm fully on board with that. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, there is clearly workplaces where there are large amounts of sexism, right? right. That requires right. remedies. And gay and lesbians, you know, the, the gay marriage thing was a very positive development, it seems to right. me. Right? I mean, um, um, those are just that, – that's the normal extension of the logic of the civil rights movement, it seems to me, right? Yes, I think that's, I think that's roughly right. Um, um, you know, the difficulty is that the, the thing about the original civil rights movement is that it was very closely connected to movements for concrete institutional legal changes. And it was, in, at least with Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph – very closely connected with issues of economic justice. Right. 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 Um, you know, Randolph and Rustin and increasingly King by the end, you know, were kind of democratic socialists, right? They thought that, um, you know, it wasn't just enough to eliminate racial, you know, de jure racial segregation. People had to have decent jobs with decent benefits. Right. Um, right. And so on. So, you know, the, the, the worrying thing is when these these identity politics movements become nothing more than just, you know, full-fledged narcissism, which is what they – certainly the Internet encourages that, right? It's just yeah. me, 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 and this is how I feel, yeah. right? Yeah, And yeah. the bottom line is who gives a shit, right? Yeah. You know, um, there's a limit to me, 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 how I feel, right? Right. I mean, I'm on, I'm on social media. I try not to do that all the time, but everybody does it some of the time, right? Facebook is nothing but me, me, me. Yeah. Here's how I feel. That's why I'm not on any of it. I'm not on any of it because I just, it, to me, I, A, I hate it and B, I don't want to turn into it myself. And so, so you know. Well, there's something, something to be said for that. But, it, no. There's something about the medium that, that particularly brings this, um, this out. Um, Anyway, but that's maybe a topic topic yeah, for, for another for time. Day, yeah. Um, so we're at an hour and a half, and uh, I think you know we've 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 done as we've done most of what I wanted to do. I did want to talk to you about the so-called school of suspicion. Maybe we'll do that another time, and you can you can also teach us about Nietzsche a little bit. Okay, um, well, that would be. I'd be delighted to come back and talk about Nietzsche. I think awesome. you you asked great questions and made exactly the right comments. So we did cover all. <laughs> A lot, very well, and without a script, as you said. So, right. So I thank you for that. Uh, Brian, I want to thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And um, uh, I will uh, I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Okay, let me know when it's up, and I'll put a link on the blog so the usual suspects can get mad. Will do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.